This is Ron Oral. I'm super excited to have back on the Activist Investing Today podcast, Duncan Arrington, Managing Director at Molus & Co., where he specializes in advising corporations on preparing for and responding to contested situations and activism. Just a little bit of uh, background. Before Duncan joined Molus, he was head of Activist Response and Contested Situations Group at Raymond James. And before that, he worked in Credit Suisse's Contested Situations Practice. Duncan got his start in his career at the London office of Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. Welcome, Duncan, and thanks for taking the time. Hey, Ron. Thanks for having me on, and pleasure to be here. Okay, cool. So today we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, one of the hottest subjects in activism today, and that is proxy contests related to environmental, social, and governance activism. And of course, everyone is still talking about all the oil and gas majors are cowering and, and running around trying to figure out how to respond to this big engine number one successful effort to get three of four distant directors elected to ExxonMobil's board in a contest that went the distance early this year. Of course, two of those dissidents came with backgrounds in renewable energy and renewable resources. The other one was a very high level energy oil and gas exec. And it was very unusual because the upstart activist, engine number one, only had a 0.02% stake in Exxon, and they focused a lot of its efforts on pushing the oil and gas major to cut carbon emissions and reduce what it considered to be risky energy investment, invest more in clean energy, such as wind and solar. They really were pushing back on kind of major investments in wind and solar. Of course, engine number one also looked at performance. So let's start there, Duncan. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on this contest and you know, what's performance in, in terms of total shareholder returns or and a lack of performance there, a key factor. How did this all play out in your view? Sure. So while the environmental focus of engine number one's campaign is what really grabbed a lot of the headlines, a core pillar of the campaign for me really focused on the most traditional of activist themes, which was, uh, as you mentioned, financial and operating performance. And in particular, what Engine Number One argued was that Exxon was essentially spending too much on projects to expand oil drilling and production and was having to increase borrowing to sustain the CapEx and its dividend payment and question whether that was sustainable. Those are all fairly traditional type of components of really like any activist thesis you see in a campaign or proxy fight. But what was different and what you mentioned that was new here was engine number one also argued that performance was linked to shareholders' environmental concerns around climate risk and energy transition. Mm -hmm. And it was this one component that got the global media attention despite engine number one's small position. If that serves as the model for future environmental-focused campaigns going forward, it means that for companies, performance will still be that key driver of vulnerability. And therefore, you know, companies that want to assess vulnerability to activism, environmental or not, it still remains. You absolutely have to start with making an open and honest assessment of your performance versus your peers, engage with shareholders to discuss the key issues they care about and take that into account. And I think that what's also clear now is you must holistically include ESG in that assessment. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it's interesting. Engine number one, I think on Monday, just came up with uh, some new principles for their goals for investing. And uh, it's basically said that a lot of the metrics for tracking uh, climate risk 
don't work very well. And so they came up with their own kind of metric. So anyways, okay. So yeah. I want to talk about the boards and governance because I feel like that was also a key aspect of engine number one success at Exxon. And, uh, you know, prior to the contest, Exxon did not have anyone on its board other than its CEO, Darren Woods, that came with the background of energy experience. And, you know, I've heard lots of reasons why it's difficult to find high ranking oil and gas executives as candidates for a board on a company that, like Exxon, for example, you know, a former CEO of Chevron probably has some proprietary conflicts and uh, is right. prohibited from being on Exxon's board and things like that. But, you know, engine number one did find somebody that had a pretty impressive energy background and that person ultimately did get elected to the board. So I wanted to talk about, I get your thoughts on, you know, and, and I feel like in most industries, Duncan, tell me if I'm right about this. Most industries, the, the people on the boards, there, there are at least some people in the industry that the company's on, on the board other than the CEO, right? That's right. Of engine number one's four nominees, two of the three that were ultimately elected and received the most votes were ones that had some energy industry experience. And for companies generally, there's a mix of director qualifications and corporate priorities that companies these days balance in trying to be deliberate about composing their boards. You obviously want board members with the right characteristics and skill sets, that they're independent, like you mentioned, have expertise in the areas where you need it, audit, financial, sustainability, other areas, whatever. On the other hand, companies are also making commitments to more actively refresh the board, diversify the board, have more shareholder input or representation on the board. And all of those things can also create hurdles or opportunities for achieving some of those goals. Mm. But like you said, among all those competing priorities, one of the most important is, is ensuring you have relevant business experience on the board. So for obvious reasons, it, it's paramount for management oversight, setting strategic goals, priorities, et cetera. But there's a range of what mix of industry and functional expertise might work best for different companies, you know, depending on size, age, industry, et cetera. And I think boards have some discretion from shareholders, but not carte blanche to decide what they think works best. And, and boards should make that determination with input from their shareholders. Generally, smaller, younger companies with less experienced management teams may need more directors with experience in that direct industry who may need to get more involved in decisions of the maybe the nitty-gritty day-to-day operations of the firm. On the other hand, you know, some very large multinational companies with complex businesses may prefer directors, more directors with functional ex- expertise in specific areas. So let's say you're a global restaurant company. You may not care so much that you have a director that's run a restaurant or a restaurant business on a much smaller scale or in different markets, or as you mentioned, could be a direct competitor and may be conflicted. But you may want people that have experience with food supply chain or consumer branding or sales or human capital management or know certain key markets. And the experience in those functional areas can be relevant in complementary industries. For example, an energy company may have directors with experience in utilities, industrial, or public policy, and still have, for example, a good understanding of sustainability issues around climate and carbon reduction. So, okay, so let me just uh, press you on that a little bit for a second here. One of the things, you know, there was a report recently that Engine Number 1 had a conversation with some of the management at Chevron. And then uh, shortly, soon after that, uh, Chevron had been already making a bunch of kind of environmental carbon reduction themed investments in in the the way I, I look at them. 
And then they announced they're going to spend $10 billion over the next seven years to increase renewable energy production to help cut their carbon pollution. And they are expected to increase their renewable fuel production to 100,000 barrels a day to meet growing demand for renewable diesel. Uh, we mm-hmm. wrote a piece about Chevron saying that it could be targeted by activists as it got a huge vote for a shield proposal on climate issues at Chevron. And as a result, perhaps an activist could launch a director contest at it next year. And one of the things was that the Chevron board also appeared to lack energy experience. So I guess, uh, you know, one of the engine one, number one directors that was elected to the Exxon board, Kaiza Haitela, correctly, previously served as president of renewable products and members of the executive committee at Nesty Oil, a Finnish oil refining company. And so she was kind of involved in their energy transition. Do these oil and gas companies need to have people with an energy transition experience on their boards? Uh, it's a good question. Um, a, a tough one, uh, too, because I think there's probably different perspectives here. And, and the, the landscape is you know, certainly always seems to be changing. But I wouldn't say we're at the point today of like a blanket rule that every energy company has to have an environmental expert, technical expert on the board. I, I, you know, for me, things like that give rise to more of a box kind of ticking mentality without sometimes having the real impact and sometimes can be harder and burdensome for some for smaller companies to comply with. And at least we haven't been there in the recent past. I mean, you mentioned Chevron. I know in, in recent years, I think in the last two or three years, they've, they've had shareholder proposals to put an environmental expert on the board. That proposal came up several times in a row or to have a, a committee on the board that was focused on environmental impact. And, you know, those got, I think, at best mixed Proxy advisor support. I think um, a lot of small shareholders voted for them, but they never came close to passing. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, would more proposals like that pass in today's environment? I, I don't know. They might get more support today. BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, others all, all seem to vote more in favor of environmental proposals this year from what I've seen. But I think what ESG-minded investors would rather see than a blanket rule like that is that directors as a whole demonstrate an ESG competency and that as a group, they understand what ESG, the, you know, what the ESG risks that are f- financial, ma- financially material to the business. And by the way, I, I don't think that necessarily requires you have to be a technical expert. You could have industry expertise. You could, you know, consult with outside experts or advisor, advisors. You can talk with you know, shareholders, management, other directors, or, or bring in a, a energy transition expert, but that you, as long as you just dis- are discussing those risks regularly with management in terms of setting the right long-term strategy and gauging progress against your peers and support or challenge management on it is necessary. I, so I, I think maybe the needle has moved some for the role that boards have with respect to ESG, but I, I don't think there's one blanket answer for every company. Okay. So you mentioned uh, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, and actually I'm eagerly anticipating the release of the latest aggregated NPX data information to see how those guys did. Uh, you know, those that was just, uh, I guess, filed in at the end of August. So, but my su- suspicion is that, you know, they're having a huge impact. Obviously, they're not going to launch a proxy fight. It's the engine number one that's the catalyst that kind of uh, drives a lot of the change, in my opinion, director change that these. Uh, these index funds have been kind of agitating about. But, you know, so tell us about their influence. You mentioned a little bit about their influence and also the influence of the proxy advisors. They supported at Exxon. I can't remember exactly. It wasn't the full slate, but some of the dissident directors. And that, I think, helped bolster engine number one's case there. Yeah, sure. So I'll start with BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, 
you know, and they've, you know, made no secret, all three, about making ESG a, a growing priority for them. And, and they've identified key priority areas, all three of them, but climate risk and diversity have been ones that have been paramount. And by the way, not just those three. I mean, pension funds, activists, really institutions of all types. Mm-hmm. But I think all, all three detailed in their vote reports about Exxon and in previous vote bulletins that they'd had extensive engagement with Exxon on the topic or had had extensive conversations. So, you know, none of that should really be, I think, a surprise. I, I think what is is kind of the acceleration of the combined focus of the three on it might be. I mean, not just talking about Exxon here, but in terms of just increased support for environmental proposals generally this year. But that should underscore the commitment that they and others are all making to this area. And so what that means is companies and in, in all sectors need to be prepared and expect to engage with them more on this topic as part of their dialogue. You know, in terms of the role of the proxy advisors, they continue to play an influential and important role in any shareholder vote. And, and you know, institutions own something like three quarters of the market. They have a much higher voting participation rate than individual shareholders. And most of them are subscribers, at least to ISS and, and or Glass-Lewis and see and read their vote recommendations. And take that into account, although many also do their own research and, and make their own final voting decisions. But as a result, voting outcomes are, off, are, are including environmental, are, are highly correlated with the proxy advisor recommendations. So, you know, I was reading a statistic recently that was saying that on environmental shareholder proposals over the last proxy season, those without ISS support received less than a third of the votes of environmental proposals that ISS recommended in favor of. And Huh. Whether, yeah, it's a big difference. And so w- whether that's because any voters blindly follow the recommendations or just their thinking is highly in line with ISS is, is pretty much irrelevant. Winning ISS and Glass-Lewis, although not always outcome determinative, is a strong bellwether of success. And if you look at Exxon as a proxy-fied example, like you mentioned, I mean, it was a similar result. And there, the institutional ownership was a little lower than at the other U.S. super majors. I think maybe something, I'm thinking like a little over half the share, 50% of the shares or something. And the three biggest institutional owners, like we've been talking about BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, had about 20% of those shares. And they have very robust internal teams that make their own decisions. And in, in that fight, they all three voted on engine number one's card, but they each supported a different mix of the activist nominees. Still, the ultimate overall outcome was in line with the ISS recommendation for the three they recommended for. So for almost any key shareholder vote, including ESG matters, proxy fight or not, it's as critical as ever that companies view ISS and Glass-Lewis like their largest shareholder or you know, who thinks like their largest shareholders and the companies understand their frameworks and how they assess these situations and how to engage with them. And then also, you know, this is a bit off topic, but the research team at ISS also has its own ESG scoring system too. Yeah, so let's talk about just very briefly here because this is a fascinating subject. I got to tell you, as a reporter, you know, whenever I write about an active situation prior to this engine number one success, I would, you know, talk to Southside analysts, try to talk to as many investors as possible, talk to the company, their advisors, the advisors, the proxy solicitors, you know, this whole network of people. And now, as I kind of look at the oil and gas sector and whether who could be targeted next, I've started talking to energy analysts at groups like 
Sustainalytics, which have mm-hmm. their own rating system that are kind of very, uh, uh, a lot of the oil and gas are high risk with their rating systems. And so I guess I wanted to get a sense from you, you know, how important are these other rating systems? There seems to be this kind of alphabet soup of standard setters and uh, rating systems for uh, environmental risk. And, you know, now I'm wondering whether the Chevron 10 billion commitment over seven years how that might improve their sustainalytics rating. I have to go, I've got to go check it out online. Yeah, uh, I mean, it could be some time. That sometimes there's a can be take a quite a while for that gets picked up. Things like that get picked up in the scores. You know, look, there, it, it, it's a wide and, and growing array of data points that companies are putting out on ESG, and, and there's going to be a lot more. It looks like, and currently, without a huge amount of consistency between companies and sectors. And then, like you mentioned, on top of that, now there's a growing number of firms, ever growing, that use that data to put out these ESG scores. And they all seem to incorporate different inputs and metrics and methodologies. And, and as a result, the results and the scores can sometimes look a little all over the place. You know, the same company with a different score provider can have sometimes pretty wide variation in, in the scores. And, you know, so just as an example, some of the ESG score providers will take an industry-specific approach. Some are kind of the same across industry and, and have a very um, the, the same methodology across sectors. Some of the scores focus heavily on disclosure. So if you don't disclose a certain metric, you get penalized very hev- heavily. You could be put ranked at the bottom for that metric just because you don't disclose a number or they just can't find that number, uh, whereas other ones don't aren't as punitive. And so the variation almost alone kind of inherently makes you wonder about the rigor of at least some of these. And I think just the proliferation has created for companies confusion on what to make of them in terms of, you know, who are the scorekeepers that matter? Who should we be comparing ourselves to and how do we stack up? What do the scores tell us about our performance against the issues our shareholders care about? And what implications are there for things, you you mentioned, um, you know, Chevron, what are things we could be doing to generate shareholder value? And, you know, there aren't always good answers for any of those questions and probably gets a lot harder as you go down that list. But we work with companies across all sectors, not just energy to help kind of untangle the ratings and deconstruct the scores, help them understand the drivers for why they may stack up a certain way. Are there maybe some mitigation steps that make sense? We also help companies look outside the scores to identify other ESG issues that shareholders may care more about. So for example, an energy company, you might look at what peers have done, uh, like you're saying, in terms of future commitments to carbon reduction, whether setting targets or committing dollars to R&D, that may or may not get picked up at all in the ESG scores, but really matter a lot. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I read somewhere that uh, some of the scores incorporate, and this is, I think, a good way to transition to my last question. <laughs> some of these uh, these uh, ESG scores considered diversity, like gender demographic diversity of the boards and companies as part of the score, along with environmental risk, whereas other ones are just, you know, hardcore environmental risk disclosure and performance. So it's, yeah, I can see how it could vary widely. So I guess uh, that's a, a way of getting into my last question, which is, you know, shifting off of environment for a second. There's a big push for more diverse boards. And we've seen this in California. And the Securities and Exchange Commission just recently approved the NASDAQ proposal that requires listed boards to have a woman director and a demographically diverse director or explain why. I'd love to see one of these explanations. You know, they have like, a, they have time to incorporate this, but 
I'm kind of curious to see what this, that explanation, why we're not able to do this looks like and whether that could be a target of activists. But anyways, I'm just wondering, what do you think about this push? And wondering whether activists could target companies to drive more board diversity. We had our sister company at the deal, BoardX, a relationship mapping service. I had them kind of run the numbers. And there are a number of NASDAQ listed companies that have no women mm-hmm. on their boards. And as far as the demographic diversity, that's hard to yep. categorize because there's a lot of disclosure. And of course, this SEC NASDAQ listing requirement is going to require disclosure. So I suspect we won't see a lot of demographic diversity. But so I guess the question is, do you think, I guess, activists could target companies to drive more board diversity or that, you know, maybe they see a company that they see other goals at and they see, oh, they need to get, uh, you know, diverse directors on and we want them to do X, Y, Z. We're going to nominate diverse directors and press our case. I don't know. What do you think? Sure. The new NASDAQ rules are just the latest push to enhance diversity on corporate boards. That rule is fairly similar in line with a number of, you know, the other things you mentioned on the topic already underway, the corporate laws in a number of states and ISS and Glass-Lewis voting policies and, and the voting guidelines of the big institutional investors. But, you know, still, like you mentioned, a lot of work to go for many boards to be in compliance there. But some momentum already in that direction prior to the adoption of the, the NASDAQ rules. And also, I, I think the NASDAQ rule has a lot of time to take effect. I yes, think you have yes. some... Depending on the size of the companies, some of the smaller yeah. companies have much longer. Uh, they have different rules. You might need to only get two gender diverse, uh, sorry, two uh, uh, women on the board rather than one woman and one demographic diverse. So it varies a lot. But yeah, there some of them have up to five years to implement this. Yeah. So, I mean, it could be that some of the other initiatives you mentioned might have more of an earlier substantive impact on actual board composition for many companies. But one of the things you mentioned, it's an additional impact that I think is important and interesting is that starting next year that the NASDAQ listed companies will have to start putting out the, the detailed information about the diversity makeup of the board composition in sort of a standardized tabular format that's going to look similar across you know all companies. And to get to your question, I mean, would potentially an activist use that as a way to find information on companies or, you know, compare them to peers as, or against some of the various rules and policies coming into place to use it as leverage to put put themselves on the board? I, I mean, look, inactivist campaigns or proxy fights, either side uses whatever leverage they reasonably can. So whether or not the NASDAQ rule itself adds much additional leverage to what's already out there on the topic, I think the topic itself will certainly be raised in future activist campaigns. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. I didn't mention that before the uh, disclosure. That's the first thing that's happening <laughs> that they have to disclose whether you have demographically yep. diverse directors. I love how like some corporate boards, they have big high resolution photos of all their directors and others, not so much. <laughs> right. So it's, it's, hard, it's hard to tell. But anyway, okay, well, this is it. We're, we've, we're run out of time. Thanks, Duncan, for uh, taking the time to chat with us. You've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast with Ron Oral. And we've been talking to Duncan Harrington, Managing Director, specializing in activism and contested situations at Molas. Thanks, Duncan, for taking the time. (laughs) Thanks, Ron. It's been a pleasure.